Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapper Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the Mesozoan affair. It's a complex topic, let's get straight down to, to brass tacks. It's a difficult topic. But one of the things that I've noticed about the media coverage is how much people have wanted to turn it into a black and white topic. So they've wanted to basically put some members of the German FA, some members of German political parties, in the wrong. And they've then put Meza Ozil and multiculturalism and the idea of a person having two hearts into you know the white, the, the good. And broadly speaking, I can understand that. But I think you're missing, by doing so, you're really missing a much more awkward and difficult topic. One that isn't quite so straightforward. I think it is you know, vitally important, especially with the way how politics is going in the United States, in Europe and in this country, that protecting multiculturalism and plurality is vital. But you simply, by glossing over some of the intricacies and the awkwardness about the Mesozoan thing, it's not you're doing more damage than good. You're not really getting to the nitty-gritty of what, where the issue lies. Now, the point is, is, my argument starts at this. The day before, that photograph with the president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, nobody, as far as I'm aware, nobody particularly asked Mesut Özil's opinion about the upcoming election in Turkey. It wasn't an issue, it wasn't something that was being discussed. But the second that photo you know, went public, went viral, immediately questions started to be asked. So at some point in any kind of discussion, you ha- it has to be noted that Meza Ozil has not brought it on himself, but has certainly allowed that situation, put himself into that position where that question could be asked. That's the point about modern sports. Is that, and it, it, actually, to be fair, in real life, is that until you make a political statement or a, you put your opinion publicly, usually most people leave your views alone. You know, it's the classic Elizabeth I quote. I'm, it is not my job to make windows into men's souls. And I don't think that I've always been asked those questions, but to voluntarily put yourself above the parapet Especially as a public figure, that's when it becomes political. That's when you effectively have to have an opinion. So let's get, let's really, before we go any further, actually outline the circumstances. So you have an election in Turkey, at which point Erdogan was looking to increase his power and to make changes to the Turkish constitution. So over the last few years, He's been making changes and really consolidating power. And one of the issues that's come up is that with Turkish elections is that people who don't live in Turkey, you know, under certain circumstances, are eligible to have a vote. So in Germany, there's 1.2 million eligible voters. Now, he is banned from electioneering in Germany. So... Essentially what you've got is a situation in May where it's about a month before the election and it's just before the sort of start of the World Cup and it's the end of the football season. So he's on a state visit to England and presumably his press office have organised a photo opportunity. So they've invited a handful of 
professional footballers to this event and there's a you know photographers so the people that they've invited is Meza Ozil, Ilke Gundogan and Cenk Tolerzin. Now the clear point is is that there are lots of you know there's some Turkish footballers that play in England there are some footballers who are who have of Turkish extraction. The interesting point is is that the players on this list they all sort of configure to a certain demographic. So in other words, Cenk Tozen was German-born but plays for the Turkish national team and had a breakout season last year for Besiktas and was a, you know, a sort of focal point in their run to the latter stage of the Champions League, which was very unexpected in a tough group. And as a result, he's then parlayed that into a I think, £27 million move to Everton. So he was, you know, effectively, you know, he's famous in, you know, for his, you know, exploits in European football for Besiktas. And you've got Ilkay Gundogan, who's had, you know, great amount of success at Borussia Dortmund and great success at Man City. And he was in the German squad for the world, upcoming World Cup. And at this point, the German world team were one of the favourites, if not the overwhelming favourites, along with Brazil. They're expected to at least get to the quarterfinals, if not the semis, if not the final. And, you know, he's you know German-born, but retains a Turkish passport as well as a German one. And you then have Mez Ozil, whose family are you know, from Turkey, moved to Germany in the 1960s. And, you know, he's obviously, you know, one of the world's most famous footballers, you know, Focal point of the German national team, uh, playing for you know Arsenal and Real Madrid, again very famous. And the fourth person that has been effectively linked to this is Emre Can, who again Turkey has some you know Turkish family, you know German-born, plays for the German national team and has had success at Liverpool. So the interesting point is is that Emre Can turns down the invitation. So it could be any number of things, but I suppose the underlying issue seems to suggest that, that he didn't want to touch it with a barge pole. That's the impression I got. I could be completely wrong. But the, the point is, is that all of those footballers are, you know, have links to Germany and Turkey and they're famous and it's just before the World Cup and two of the people out of this list are going to you know, be key parts of the German attempts to retain the World Cup. And it's just before an election. And it's a, an election in which he is, you know, Erdogan is unable to electioneer in Germany. So clearly there has to be some benefit to Erdogan to have these photo opportunities with these famous German-Turkish football players. Who have it, you know? I mean, Mesut Ozil has the is the most followed Premier League player on Instagram, and that's more than Pogba, more than any other number of famous footballers. He has a he is one of the world's most famous footballers. So clearly, there is some benefit to Erdogan to have his photo taken with Mesut Ozil and to have his photo taken with Gundogan and to a lesser extent Tozan. It is not something that is designed for you know. Yeah, it would have some benefits at home, but really you can see where the benefit is for Erdogan. It is, you know, really talking to the 1.2 million voters in Germany. 
it's linking. I mean, the, 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 one of the clear issues is, is that Gundogan gives... They all give shirts to him, but the one that has got the most amount of attention is Gundogan giving him a Man City shirt with the inscription, To My President. You know, it, it's clearly... An, you know, I would interpret that, and I think most people would interpret that as a message of political support. So, as a result, you've had this situation where, effectively, a politician has used those three players as a photo op and as a low-key election, you know, photo op. Immediately, you know, question marks are raised as in Germany. Because, obviously, you've had a whole situation where you've had... German-Turkish journalist spent a year in prison, was imprisoned. You've had a lot of issues where journalists have been imprisoned and branded as terrorists. There's a huge amount of controversy, really, surrounding you know the polit political situation in Turkey. And there was issues between Germany and Turkey. And as a result, I mean... You <sighs> And as a result, the questions have been immediately asked in Germany as, you know, it's a major issue, is that you have one of the senior players on the German national team in the weeks before a World Cup getting involved in a political situation that is very delicate. And the implication is, is that Tosin, Gundogan and Mesut Ozil were pledging support to Erdogan. Whether or not that's 100% fair is... It's a personal... It's a personal opinion. It's not my role to make windows into men's souls. I can't tell you definitively whether Meza Ozil is a huge supporter of Erdogan or whether he's political or not. I, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. What I can say, with a fair degree of certainty, is that that taking that photo was was naive in the extreme. If you are unpolitical, and if you and part of the reason why I think I my personally I have a bit of an issue with Ozil is him essentially claiming that it was a non-political thing, that it was just showing respect to his Turkish roots. There are a million different ways you can do that. But to take a photo with a president who is in the midst of a election campaign, at some point, you know, it's good, people are going to interpret it as a you know, measure of support. And the fact that you've already, that somebody on that list who was invited has turned it down seems to... And the point is, is that if it had been maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago when you know, players didn't have the support networks they have now. So in other words, um, I was reading an article about Match Magazine and Shoot Magazine and their sort of battle in the late 80s and 90s for readership. Is that back in those days you really could just call up a player and... They would, you know, essentially agree to do something and you'd do it. Now you couldn't do that. You can't just call up Cristiano Ronaldo on his mobile and say, look, can you do an interview right here and now? You'd have to go through his PR people, his agent. You'd have to go through his personal assistants. These players have 
a network of support staff around them at all time. They are gatekeepers. So there has been lots of people that have signed off on him rocking up to this event. So at some point, unless everyone in his team just said, yep, fine, fair enough, I can't see any downside to doing this, at some point he has agreed to do it. And the result is is that there's been a, a firestorm. Now... He has every single right to take that photo. He has every single right to defend himself against any form of attack. And, But I think there is a point that has to be made is that these are difficult political times. You know, alternative for Deutschland is getting success. You've had Brexit. You've had Donald Trump. Even if you are avowedly and overtly non-political, you'd still, by pro- you know, just process of living, you know, in this country... And, you know, being a key figure in Germany, you would pick up on the fact that there is issues politically and that the far right is gaining some measure of support. And so, and with things like Twitter, with things like Instagram, just social media in general, is that whereby 10, 15 years ago that photo may have end, might not have ended, might have ended up in a newspaper or it might have ended up in a magazine, there would have been, it wouldn't have been instantaneous. It, you know, with newspapers is that today's newspaper is tomorrow's chip paper, whereby with the internet and with social media, these things, firestorms, can carry on for days and it's instantaneous and you can get people directly messaging you. It's, you know, there isn't so much the sense that you can just go into your house, close the door, and if you unplug the phone, that's it. No one's going to bother you. It doesn't, you know, the modern world doesn't work in that way. So really, the way how, I suppose, Mez Ozil could have dealt with this is simply to have essentially made the same statement that he made, but really adding the caveat that he... While he didn't consider it in his own personal opinion a measure, you know, he wasn't pledging support to Erdogan or anything that he was saying, but you would have to add the caveat, I'm really non-political. And I didn't think it'd get this kind of traction or this kind of media interest. And But I do understand why people have asked that question. And, you know, fair enough, it was, you know, naive to some extent, on my behalf. But by not taking that level of responsibility to essentially admit that I don't know enough about politics to get involved, by almost saying, look, not that he that people didn't have the right to ask the question, that they shouldn't have been asking it in the first place, that they should have just taken it at face value, that it was just a measure of, you know, it was just a photo op with, you know, the president, and he was just showing respect. To my mind, I see is that either Ozil, as I've said, essentially admits that he's been naive, which is not a crime and it's not, and I don't think, I think people would have understood, is that we're not expecting Meza Ozil to be a political science graduate. We're not expecting him to have a detailed opinion about, you know, the state of Turkish politics. But what we want, I think what people want is at least the understanding that a person of that level of responsibility of a major athlete could at least understand people's feelings on the issue 
and to essentially understand that they have a point and that you've taken that on board. But at the same time, you're not dropping on to, to, to bended knee and apologising to the entire German people. You're simply saying, yep, yeah, I can see why you have a point. I didn't take that into you know my estimations. And then you can really draw a line on it. The, the flip side of it is that he could have gone the other way. And again, I would completely respect him if he would say, yep, yeah, you know what, I'm a big Erdogan fan. I, you know, I hope he gets re-elected. I hope his, you know, reforms all go through without a problem. At which point, you've made your opinion, and like like I've said, once you go over that parapet, you will then have people criticizing you, arguing with you, and that. What I feel that Ozil's response to it has been is to almost skirt the issue. He's decided I don't want to take any blame. But at the same time, I don't want to nail my colours to the mask. I kind of want to float into this kind of grey area where, essentially, all I was doing is, you know, just showing some respect to my, you know, Turkish ancestry, and it was an honour for me, but there was nothing political attached to it. Because, but the problem is, is that it fails, because the person sitting next to you, <laughs> Gundogan, who is your teammate in the German squad has given the, the president of Turkey a shirt that says, my president. It's, that's, that's political support in my book. And being next to that person and in that photo shoot at that time, it, it's pretty obvious that Erdogan is getting some level of political you know capital out of it. Again, another flip side to it that I can imagine people saying is that Ozil has been used politically before by the German authorities. In other words, Angela Merkel has, I mean, there's a famous one where they beat Turkey in a friendly 3-0, and Merkel you know, finds her way into the dressing room to shake hands with Mez Ozil straight after the game. And Ozil has been used as a poster child for the sort of, but I guess what the, not, not the success, but as an example of you know, cultural diversity in modern Germany. Now, the point that I would make is is that both of those instances, the Erdogan photo and the Merkel photo, are in some ways grubby political cynicism. But I think how you have to analyse it is what end purpose was of both of those photos. The end purpose for Erdogan is to get you know his political mandate to get re-elected and to allow himself to make the change, allow the changes to be made to the constitution and the you know political the political scene in Turkey that is beneficial to Erdogan. It is controlling power. It is abolishing term limits. All of the bits and pieces that you know that are of personal benefit to him. Now for Merkel, yes, there is some personal benefit to her. You know, in being associated with the success of the German national team, but by trying to use Ozil as a poster child, the idea is it's trying to basically show the positives of multiculturalism. To say that you know, this is the, the Germany that we should all aspire to. And it, it's a way of trying to diffuse, you know, tensions to, to try and 
really educate people on the benefits of it. You know, to my mind, I think there's a lot more positives in, you know, Angela Merkel and the German political establishment using Mesut Ozil as a poster child for that means. Because you know, I think that there is benefits and it's trying to create a more inclusive and a more open Germany. And because it, it you know multiculturalism in Germany in Europe in you know is a, a fact of life and that the dangers of the right wing and the far right is that to try and destroy that and I think one of the things that you, you have to really take from this is um, there's a famous uh, Turkish basketball player Enes Kanter that's played in the NBA in America for a few different teams. At the moment, he's a New York Knit, and he is critical of Erdogan. And as a result, he's been arrested a couple of times when he's been in Europe, not in Turkey itself. On well, he's been detained a couple of times in Europe, and the implication of that is that the that his lack that his Criticism of Erdogan has led the Turkish officials to essentially want him to be detained and, you know, effectively... It's really just a form of, I suppose, political harassment. And if you then factor in uh, Hakan Suka, the very famous... The ball of the Bosphorus, who was um, you know, a huge part of the sort of Turkish national team in the late 90s, early 2000s, was the captain when they went to the... finished in... Got to the semi-finals of the 2002 World Cup. He's currently living in exile in America. So the thing is, is that, what, well, is that, in both situations, the Turkish state and Erdogan have effectively, you know, excommunicated these two very famous Turkish people because they have effectively, you know, have shown dissent, and that's sportsmen, and that. You know, it comes down, and we are now living in a time of the, you know, the Colin Kaepernick situation in America. So it should have a, a real impact on someone like Meza Ozil to say that, you know, it's a fellow sportsman who is being, who isn't able to go back to Turkey, who faces harassment when he goes into Europe as a result of, you know, just everyday political criticism. And that, you know, Hakan Suka, who is a, you know, legendary Turkish figure in football, is, you know, effectively, you know, you know living in exile. It, that should give you some element of pause. And I think from this point, you, you also need to, I suppose, really look at Ozil's role in the German national team in terms of as a, I suppose, as I've said, poster child or a figurehead, is that, you know, he makes his debut in 2009. So, if you look at it, German, German national team's sort of lowest point is Giro 2000. It's an ageing squad led by Lothar Matthäus. It's, they're knocked out in the group stages, they lose all their games, they lose to England, they get battered by Portugal, and they've really reached an adir. And the German FA immediately decide to go just back to square one. 
So they completely change their youth structure, they invest in the infrastructure, and unexpectedly, yeah, there's a couple of hiccups. They lose 5-1 to England, for example, but by 2002, they're at least they've got a new manager, they've got a new impetus, they've got some younger players, and they 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 get to the World Cup final. It's not beautiful, but you know, they've at least got to the World Cup final, they are back to where they want to be. And but at the same time, the football they played in, in Japan and South Korea was a little bit it was dull. It was you know, they relied a lot on Oliver Kahn and their real sort of leading light was was Michael Balak. And he gets suspended for the final. And they, they do a bit better in 2004 in terms of football. You know, you, you, that's the first time that we see Schweinsteiger. But they're still not fully there. But the World Cup in 2006, hosted in Germany, is really where the people fall back in love with the Mannschaft, the, 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 the team. You know, they're younger, they play beautiful football, and they get through to the semi-final, and Jürgen Klinsmann's in control, and... You know, because of the, you've also got the youth side of it and the infrastructure that happened after the two, Euro 2000, and you get all the new stadiums being built and renovated for the World Cup, and it's just a great moment. I mean, they don't win, they get knocked out in the semis, but it's an honourable defeat, and they're young enough to know that they're going to come again. And in this instance, in that team, you have Lukas Podolski and Miroslav Klose. Miroslav Klose make is you know scores a load of goals in the mostly against Saudi Arabia in two thousand and two. But both of them are Polish born, but they play proudly and they do brilliantly well for the national team. Now in two thousand nine, Jerome Boateng makes his debut. <laughs> now he is you know he's got a. German mother and a Ghanaian father, and Ozil, who has this Turkish, you know, his family from Turkey, who moved over to Germany in the sixties, as I've said. So the point is, is that Ozil wasn't the only one, and you know, German football at that point was trending upwards. And in two thousand ten, they go to the World Cup, they annihilate England. They, you know, under Joachim Lowe, who was the assistant manager to Jurgen Klinsmann in two thousand six. You can see a bright, you know, a bright foot future for the German national team, and he is one of the key sort of points to it. And after the World Cup, he then gets a huge money move to Real Madrid. So the point is, is that in Ozil's international career, he comes in at just the right moment. The German people are falling back in love with the team. It is a multicultural team. With a you know, with a, and a young core that all grow up together. A lot of them play for Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich have success in Europe. You know, Borussia Dortmund under Jurgen Klopp have success. It's a really great time. In other words, in Ozil's you know international career up until this World Cup, he they'd never been in a, in a finished lower than the semi finals. It has just been a very positive experience and the German people who have been behind them and it culminates in you know World Cup in Rio where they win it and they destroy Brazil in the semi-finals. You know, and it's a brilliant moment, millions of people, you know, throng the streets when they arrive for the winning parade 
and it's all very positive. Now, if you compare that with the situation that a player, you know, same age as Ozil, same level of sort of talent, if that player was English, and all of the issues that the English national team has had in the same intervening time period. So, in other words, Mesut Ozil has had one international manager, you know, in Joachim Lowe. A, the comparable English player would have had, you know, Fabio Capello, would have had Sam Allardyce, would have had Uncle Roy, you know, Gareth Southgate, you know, plenty of different managers, plenty of different issues and anger and frustration that the British people or English people put on their players when they do not succeed. So we've had the nightmare of Iceland game. We had the nightmare of getting battered by the Germans in 2010. Yeah, you know, we've had plenty of stodgy group games, you know, team yeah, you know, being knocked out of the World Cup in Brazil within 6 days. You know, there's been so many kind of negative moments. You've had the John Terry situation. You've had Fabio Capello resigning because of John Terry. You've had, you know, any number of different moments at which the you know if you compare let's say Wayne Rooney who's just had you know any number of you know pressure and you know and just a huge amount of negativity and pressure that has been put onto the England national team and a desire to not only play well but you know and also people having debates over the nature of Englishness and you know the you know some of the criticisms that Raheem Sterling has had Mesut Ozil's never really had that. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been, you know, abuse and, you know, people have racially abused him. He did. He says that there was a time when he was walking off for the German national team where someone was calling him, yeah, any number of vile epitaphs all linked to his Turkish ancestry. But my point is, is that overall, his experience up until, you know, the day before that photo was taken was generally pretty positive. And the support he's got from the German FA, the German government, and the German people as a whole would be overwhelmingly positive. Yet there are some bad, you know, people that you know, people that abuse people on the internet and they're racist and they're far right people. I understand that. And that there's, you know, there's a limited way of stopping people getting onto their computer and sending abuse to famous people. Unfortunately, it's a byproduct of social media. For all the positives that you can say about social media, there are clear negatives. But my point is, is that Ozil, you, know, you un is that you have a choice. You can be non-political. You can not be on social media in any way, shape, or form, and you can. You know, not do that many interviews, but the flip side of it is is that you don't get your boot deal isn't as much. You don't get as many, you know, as famous. Maybe that affects your transfer value. Any number of different bits and pieces is that it is, but that it's a personal choice of the player. Is that you can either be political, you can be online. But there are going to be downsides to it. So in other words, for all of the benefits Mesut Ozil gets from being the most followed player, Premier League player on Instagram, that means that there will be downsides is that you will open yourself up to people, random people, abusing you racially. 
and it's terrible and these companies should do far more to stop it, but it is simply a fact of modern life. But it's a choice that the player makes. And this is where, you know, again, circularity comes back to it was his choice to take that photo, at which point that, you know, the inevitable contract is is that the world that we live in with the, you know, fractured nature of politics with polarisation meant that people were going to ask the questions. And my criticism of Mesut Ozil, and in some of the ways that he's dealt with this situation, has been to to almost clump everyone into the same kind of black and white argument to say that actually the people that were asking the question was of a not necessarily racist nature but to say that the criticism was unmerited now i think that is that if you're going to be the better way of doing it would have been simply to say this of course you know the far right jumped on that photo as a way of simply gaining attention and of utilising it as a way to throw discord out. Oh, look, there's you know, Meza Ozil. Oh, he's supposed to be German, but here he is, you know, giving support to the Turkish president. And all the implications of that being a sign that multiculturalism has failed and all the rest of it. Any number, and oh, well, people that, you know, have you know, different cultural backgrounds aren't German. It's, you know, it's... It's sad that that happens, but that is, yeah, you know, rule one of their playbook. But at the same time, that that the, the people there was people on the other side of that argument who were actually saying, well, there are question marks to that. You know, the implication that he was supporting Erdogan, and that well, look at some of the things that Erdogan has done, which I've mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that actually we do have some questions and. My point is, is that I think that they are legitimate questions. And this is why ignoring that issue has created more problems. Is that you're essentially, Mesut Ozil was almost in a way wrapping himself around the sort of flag of, oh, I have two hearts. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But the implication is that you can't ask him that question over, you know, well, what did you mean by that photo? And could you at least not have seen that, you know, in some way, shape or form, you were being used for political ends? And that may have not been your intention, but that's what's happened. And that, you know, to at least take the responsibility of that would then at least of... And you could have then used it as a tool, really, to disarm these right-wing, you know, critiques of it. To say, yep, yeah, that was a, you know, perfectly... There were some legitimate questions raised from it as a debating point, but that actually I am one hundred. You know, I am a proud German citizen. I'm proud to play for the team. I, you know, that kind of argument. But by not by not accepting legitimacy of it, of the valid questions that have been raised by that photo, is that. It, it's the issue hasn't been solved and so as a result it's now because that wasn't dealt with before the world cup is that then the issues from the world cup i.e germany getting knocked out in the first round for the you know first time since you know the, the 1930s and the fact that Mesut Ozil didn't play particularly well it's the issue still you know 
the em the fires are still the embers of this argument are still you know crackling away under the surface which then mean, means that you know any kind of criticism of Mesut Ozil's performances out in Germany had the implication of were you criticising him for the photo and did the photo lead to issues within the German squad now the point is is that there were lots of different issues in the German squad that were wholly unrelated to the photo. I don't think the photo did any long-term harm, but it wasn't a positive, put it that way. And that one of the issues, really, from a footballing standpoint was is that Joachim Lowe, who's been doing this job for an extended period of time, simply got a bit casual and almost got a little bit cute in his thinking. So he had the... Confederations Cup, which was the year before the finals. So he had an issue where he was, you know, his team, you know, the 2014 team who won the World Cup were four years older. And there was, a, you know, the point of, well, if I take them all there and, you know, that's another summer tournament and that might tire them out for the season and then leave them a little bit, you know, vulnerable to being jaded for the World Cup itself. And look, I've got all of these fantastic, talented young players. Why don't I take out a skeleton squad? So I'm keeping my first team fresh. I'm blooding the youngsters, getting them used to tournament football, which will have a beneficial result to them, you know, in tournaments to come. And that on paper makes sense. But the underlying problem was is that it was creating a sort of two-track system. So you had the... Core, part, core parts of the first team who were essentially given a freebie for that summer and it was then doubled down when the young team won the tournament in thrilling circumstances. So suddenly you then had, you know, effectively you're trying to mould two squads into one. So you have the returning regulars who are all world champions, but you have these fantastic young players. And as a result, it wasn't a unified Germany that played in that tournament. So you had some issues between the senior players, you had some issues between the young players, you had a sort of north-south divide in terms of some people saying that the that there were cliques. And obviously the issue with the photo added to that. In a limited sense. All of which really culminate in him retiring from international football at the well, at the end of the, the tournament. Now, I think Ms. Ozil has every single right, you know, to feel let down, to feel disappointed, and to retire from international football. I, I fully understand that. And I think that even had he not I don't imagine that he was going to be long for the German national team. I think his form in the last two or three years has dropped off and that the sort of talent that's floating around German football, you know, for example, Leroy Sarnia, eventually I think he would have been replaced. But at the same time, coming back to the issue is, is that I feel that he's painted everyone with the same brush by essentially... You know, saying that there are elements of the German FA that were racist. So one of the points he made was that I'm German when we win, but I'm an immigrant when I lose. I think if you want to compare a, a similar sort of situation was the Andy Murray situation, 
Now, Andy Murray is Scottish, he also is British, and whenever he's been at Wimbledon, he's always been considered, you know, a home tournament. And I think the difficulty with, with Andy Murray really comes down to, to a couple of different points, is that one of his best qualities is his is his sincerity. He is exactly who he is, and there's no amount of phonyism. But the flip side to that is that, you know, when he first came out, he was quite skinny, he had kind of this wild haircut, and he wasn't really bothered about the fashion side of it, and, you know, a lot of his media comments were fairly you know, blunt and to the point. In other words, someone said, oh, well, how, how much your parents have felt while watching? It's like, you know, how, sorry, I think the question was, how difficult is it for your parents to watch? It's like, well, you know what, it's actually more difficult for me to be playing it. That kind of bluntness and almost a desire not to, you know, play up to the PR side of it. But as a result, that meant that some people had a, a sort of negative a negative appraisal of it. And the way how people, I suppose, then... Especially English people, how they saw that was to basically say, oh, God, look at him, he's just a dour Scot. Which is, you know, a cultural stereotype. But I think it was also a way in that... If you if he looked like Ewan McGregor, I think he'd have been hugely popular. Because there is a sense that yeah, much in the same way that Rooney had a similar situation, because Rooney, frankly, wasn't very attractive, and neither was Andy Murray. So as a result, people just had a negative viewpoint of them from day one, and they used any kind of mistakes, like you know, when Rooney at the Algeria game says, oh, you know, it slagged off the England fans, and people jumped on when um, Andy Murray jokingly said, I'm supporting anyone but England, and it just fed into people's already negative perception of him. The difference being is that over the years, you know, as more people have learned about his, you know, personal life in terms of, you know, growing up and having to deal with the Dunblane massacre, and with each passing year and seeing his emotions, people eventually found out the real Andy Murray, and a lot of people tended, you know, to like that person. He is emotional, he is real, and appreciated it, and it also helped that he won. And so... It really, for him, one of the most interesting moments was the Scottish independence vote. So I think on the, I think it was the morning of the vote, he sort of tweeted something out that, while not a overt statement of support, it could be quite, it was implied that he was supporting the, you know, vote for Scottish independence. Now, for someone who's, you know, benefited from, you know, playing for, you know, Great Britain in the Davis Cup and winning, eventually winning the Davis Cup, someone who's dealt with a huge amount of support from all parts of the United Kingdom, specifically at Wimbledon, you know, there was going to be lots of people that were going to disagree with him, people that believed in the union. So eventually, you know, the, the fallout from it was that, you know, Scotland voted to, voted against independence, and eventually he had to clarify and say, look, I've taken a lot of, you know, heat from this 
and from now on I'm going to stick to tennis. And that must have been an awkward moment for anyone. No one wants to admit that they were wrong or that they've been and or to take that amount of criticism. But eventually he ascertained that, well really, that was the best move for him. Is that you know, when you're a public figure and when you go above that parapet and when you get into the political sphere, not everyone's going to be happy and often and in the world of social media you're going to take a huge amount of criticism from that and really in the end the fallout hasn't been too bad you know he's still you know in my opinion a national hero so while i respect you know Mesut Ozil's emotions and the reasons behind him feeling that he doesn't want to play for germany I think if you compare, let's say you compare it to the Enia Luko situation. Now, essentially Enia Luko was similar to Ozil in the sense that she became uh, the poster woman for women's football in England. I mean, she was literally, if you've got a PR department to invent a women's football player, you know, to market to the nation as a whole you'd come up with something close to any Luko. So in other words, you know, she had come... She'd come from an immigrant background. She'd had to work incredibly hard to, you know, get to the top of, you know... And it was... And you have to remember, when she started, it wasn't a profession. It was bare... It wouldn't, I wouldn't even really call it semi-pro. So she's had to fight her way to the top of her sport. You know, she's then played you know, for England, scored a lot of goals, played at the top level of women's football as it started to move towards you know, semi-pro status to the point where it's now at a stage where the top division is fully professional. And the, the ensuing you know, battle for you know, fair facilities, for money, for you know, acknowledgement, media attention. And also she's then, on the, the flip side of it, you know, she then got a law degree so she's become a lawyer and that she was very you know very media friendly and that she had a compelling sort of narrative and a way of and a way of elocuting that and naturally the FA you know jumped on top of that and used her as a you know poster child but even if she'd done nothing more than that you know is the fact that she then carried on and that she then broke boundaries on her own. In other words, she was the first woman to appear on you know, Match of the Day. It, it was Match of the Day 2 on the Sunday, but it was still a landmark moment that they had a female pundit and that she's carried on doing that and even you know, and battling and being popular. And obviously, she'd established herself as really one of the leading lights of women's football in this country. So when Mark Sampson takes over, you know, the English women's team was at a low ebb. The Hope Powell, who was a, you know, a, tight, a huge titan of English women's football as a player, as a manager, as an administrator, and as a spokeswoman for, you know, trying to improve things, trying to improve facilities, trying to batter for equality. She was a very good manager. However, it was, I think, the classic example where... It just went on for a couple of years too long. And so the last tournament she was at was just a complete disaster. They'd The squad was unfit. It was, you know, there was cliques. 
and they got knocked out in the group stages and it was just an absolute mess of a tournament. Some people had been left out and there was a lot of negativity. So Mark Sampson had, you know, who'd you know come from sort of men's football in terms of sort of scouting. He'd done a little spell at a lower division Welsh team on the male side and had really come into women's coaching not relatively late, but you know, had only been really involved in it sort of two, three years, takes over the national team. At which point, Aluko was already a major star in her own right. And the team immediately starts performing better, and it culminates into them getting to the World Cup semi-final. And a lot of the players that were brought in by Sampson were people that had been on the, either the periphery or really had been ignored by Hope Powell. And... You know, Samson was a charismatic young you know, coach with a lot of new ideas and really pushed English football, English women's football to the next level where they were trying to compete with the established countries. So you're talking about Germany, Sweden, France and the US. And as a result, a lot of the players felt very attached to Samson because they he had been the one that had given them their chance at international football. Any Aluko never had that. And I think as a result, Samson felt, I suppose, challenged. In other words, Mark Samson was never on match of the day two. And, you know, at some on some level I I've always interpreted his treatment of any Aluko to being one of Essentially not being able to handle that there was someone in that team who wasn't beholden to him. And who essentially didn't need his support, in other words, to be one of the England's best strikers. And to be a huge figure in the, the sport as a whole. And so, as a result, you know, there was just some really horrendous treatment of her. So, you know, he made racist jokes, his coaching staff said horrible things and treated her in a really atrocious way. And eventually, you know, she complains about it. And effectively, the FA are faced with a choice, is that they can either support this major figure, this someone who is just from the bootstraps up, and who's driven the sport, who's been an absolute icon, they can support her. Or they can back the white male middle-class coach. And immediately, they basically try and cover it up. They try and keep the white coach in his job, and eventually they give a huge payout, to well, a £100,000 payout to Luco, with the you know understanding that, effectively, never to talk about it ever again. And as a result, it's coming up to the European Championships, and Aluko would have been expected to be, you know, having been a major striker for Chelsea, one of the better teams in the league, she would be expected to be in that squad. So immediately what Sampson does to, I suppose, cover up this situation, is that he, to give a bit of background, women's football essentially was changing from being a summer sport to being a winter sport. And 
there was a kind of a gap in the calendar t- that they would need to do. So essentially, they basically split the league into sort of two halves. And it's a short season in the summer, just before the European Championships, to allow the you know players to remain sharp, but to still be ready effectively for the after the tournament for the, a new winter season to start in September. Now, at the time, and this was interpreted as a sign of his managerial brio and genius, he announces the England squad before the start of the season and leaves out Luko. Now, at the time, people just said, wow, what a brave move. He's just confident in his team and, you know, as a result, he doesn't feel the need to wait and, you know, it gives him this level of certainty. Now that we know all the facts, it actually doesn't appear to be that way at all. It was really a way of him being able to leave out Aluko without there being as much criticism. So in other words, if Aluko was the top scorer and his the other strikers that you know he had chosen instead hadn't done so well, that would have been a major talking point, at which point, you know, the the, the reasons behind her being out of the squad would have you know effect, could have potentially come out to light. In the end, some of the players that he picks instead of Aluko do perfectly well. Aluko's top scorer, and it, and this is one of the things that I think really comes out when if you look at if you compare Ozil to other sports stars who've had a similar been in a similar kind of position, is that. Aluko has done a huge amount of grassroots work, a huge amount of media, stuff that she didn't necessarily have to do. But she did it anyway. And so she's been given this payoff. She's been chucked out of the squad, effectively blacklisted, for just coming out against a racist head coach or someone who at least indulged in racist behaviour. And any that would be crushing to any normal person. And yet, she still has effectively the grace to accept to be a pundit for Channel 4 with no one knowing. So Channel 4 didn't know, none of the journalists knew, none of the fans at home watching TV, watching these games would have known that all all they know is that she was, you know, late 20s, early 30s and she just wasn't picked in the squad and that she'd had a great England career. And so, and she's having to discuss Mark Sampson, the teammates who effectively hadn't supported her. And she did a brilliant job being as a, as a pundit. And in no way, she did anyone at the time suspect that she had any axe to grind, which takes a measure of self-control that I think a lot of other people, oh, you know, wouldn't have been able to do. Or they would have been overtly critical, though they'd been snide about it. And in no way, shape or form was she. And when at the end of the tournament, this whole you know saga and me, you know, first started to come out, she then had to deal with people not believing her. She had to deal with the FA, but effectively being institutionally racist, still trying to you know cover it up in very mealy mouth kind of ways, and she had to you know stand up in you know in front of a parliamentary committee, you know under huge amounts of pressure. And with very limited support. I mean, one of the examples was I think David James made a tweet seemingly suggesting that she wasn't telling the truth. Any number of different bits and pieces. And 
you then have the Drew Spence side of it. It's that Drew Spence was a midfielder for Chelsea and she was on the sort of outskirts of the sort of England squad. She and and this is one of the things that I suppose one of the reasons why I kind of dislike Mark Sampson in a way is apart from obviously all the obvious things, is that he could have basically decided that he, for whatever reason, didn't like any Aluko and could have dropped her. <laughs> and it would have been a judgment call. And the difference was is that it was that kind of, it was kind of overt cynicism. In other words, you know, he may have had issues with any Aluko, you know, felt challenged by her because she, you know, wasn't as beholden to him as other players in the squad. But at the same time, instead of dropping her and just, you know, forgetting that she ever existed, is that he was quite happy for her to be in the squad as long as she was scoring goals and helping, you know, basically boost his career. And so it comes down to Drew Spence. She's mixed race and, you know, when she was younger, she'd been, you know, she'd had some issues with the law. You know, I think relatively petty stuff, but it was, you know, just some part of her history. And she gets called up to the England squad and immediately in Mark Sampson's viewpoint of the world, this is what I suspect personally, is that he felt threatened because, oh, this is someone who's been in trouble with the police. She, you know, this person may well, you know, become an issue. She might have her own, you know, she might not ex- you know, respect his authority effectively. And so immediately decides, instead of just either, you know, he could, you know, he wasn't in a position where he absolutely had to pick her. But instead he says, well, look, I'll pick her, but I will make sure. And you have to remember, this is someone who's 20, who's in their first English school. It is an absolute honour. It's the thing that you, when you grow up as a kid, you want to play for your country. And it's just a, a brilliant, you know, personal moment. He decides that he's going to, in the middle of a meeting with midfielders, is to point out in front of her teammates, oh, you've been in trouble with the police a few times. It's a way, the way how I interpret it, is it's him going, I'm going to lay down my authority to you at point one, is that I know that you can be trouble, I've recognised that, and I'm stopping you right now. And it's a horrible, lousy thing to do to someone. And it's especially lousy to... And when there's an element of race in it as well. And so when you back that up with the Enya Luko thing, it's just a really, just a shitty thing to do. And the whole crisis and the whole problem went on for months before eventually they finally come out with the, you know, that essentially the FA had bungled it and he was effectively guilty of you know having made some just horrendous statements and creating a really toxic environment if you were essentially black or mixed race in that squad when you're already you know a visible minority in the sense that you know that england squad was for the most part you know white to be horribly blunt about it and one of the saddest moments that i felt about this whole thing was is that Samson was desperately trying to hold on to his job. So it was really only at the last sort of moments of it when he finally basically came out and said, yeah, you know what, I've said all the, you know, all the things that any Luko has accused me of, yeah, I, I pretty much said it. <laughs> it was only at the last possible moment when it was pretty much you know, open and shut that it had happened as, as it, she said. 
despite the fact that for months people there was insinuations that she hadn't you know that she was lying or misremembering any number of different things is that you have the first game after the world cup it's a qualifier for the euros and i think they were playing serbia so a team that they're going to pretty much batter anyway and he arranges with the squad that when they score the first goal is that all of the the girls on the team will run towards him and they'll have a group celebration so can you imagine if you're any aluko and this is the first game and you know at this point it seemed as if you know samson would keep his job and they score and these are teammates that you've played with for years your peers and they all then run over and celebrate with him which is basically a massive slap in the face to her and all the the struggles and a lot of those players hadn't really in any way shape or form you know stood up for her or in any way shape or form given any kind of level of public support and it's one of the things that maybe you know because of the coverage of women's football in this country is still yeah let's be completely honest fairly spotty Maybe I've missed it, but I, I've never heard any one of those players involved in that come out and publicly say, you know what, that was a huge mistake and I regret it. Is that in the end, Mark Sampson gets sacked from the England manager job, effectively not officially because of the Enia Luko thing, although in my personal opinion, that was more than enough to justify being sacked, is that... Actually, it was for behaviour that he'd done when he was at Bristol Academy, where the intimation is is that he was having inappropriate relationships with some of his younger players in his, under his you know charge basically. And so you you think about it, and obviously this was a you know about two three four years ago, is that. Now looking at the prism of through the prism of, you know hashtag Me Too, is that really you've got this guy who's basically been accused of you know racism and you know inappropriate behavior with you know young women and yet he had a whole group of you know female players rallying his support it doesn't you know now obviously at the time i you know the those players didn't know about the allegations but it doesn't look good now does it so really bringing it back to Mesut Ozil is that if you compare what he's gone through in the last sort of two three months I suppose in comparison with Enia Luko I'd, I'd have to say that I think Enia Luko had it a lot worse I think she had to deal with the fact that her the FA at all levels you know didn't support her and that they tried their desperate to protect Mark Sampson and to cover up their bungling and that you know, she didn't get support from her teammates. Now, the point is, is that there has been, again, intimations that maybe she wasn't the most popular person on the team. Maybe that, you know, some people consider her hard work. Now, I, I can't tell you one way or the other. I wasn't there. there. Again, there isn't enough, you know, coverage of women's sport that you'd ever get down to that level where you'd be able to ascertain if someone was hard work or not. But the point is, is that considering... The abuse that she got from Samson, considering the issues that the FA had with her and trying to pay her off, and her how she dealt with it in terms of her punditry, and the work she did at the World Cup, this World Cup for the men's World Cup, and being the 
along with Alex Scott, you know, the first, you know, female, you know, pundit to work, you know, the games. I feel that, you know, that she was deserved more support from her fellow pros. That's my own opinion. But, I mean, if you compare it with the amount of support that, you know, Mesut Ozil's had from the sort of German public and the criticisms and even some of the more senior people, like Oliver Bierhoff, who was is effectively the general manager of the German national team. He said some things that which were quite controversial, but he's apologised. And I think if you look at the support he's had from the British media, that there's, I think, the amount of support that Mesut Ozil has had in comparison with Eni Aluko is just so much bigger. And the point is, is that any Aluko didn't ask to be, you know, essentially, you know, racially abused by Mark Sampson. You know, she didn't bring it upon her. All she ever did was fight the good fight in trying to, you know, you know, all I think she, I think all she ever wanted was just for them to basically say, you know what, this has happened. We're really sorry. And, and really for the FA to put in the kind of structure that this would never happen again. And we eventually, I think a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of improvements made, but there's still a huge long way to go. For example, you know, Phil Neville is now the England women's team manager. And the point is, is that how he got the job is just, it is beyond a ridiculous tale. So effectively you have a cocktail reception held nominally for the FA or at the FA's headquarters. I can't remember the exact details. But essentially you've got an FA official and a journalist having a few cocktails and just casually in the in the conversation the journalist goes to the FA guy, well wouldn't Phil Neville make a pretty decent England women's team manager? Now the point is that Phil Neville at this juncture had never coached in women's football has shown effectively what not no interest, but it would never have come up. It, you know, he was trying to, you know, he had, you know, he was coaching at Valencia. He'd always played, you know, men's football. There was nothing in his history that ever suggested that he had anything to do with women's football. But I can see the logic behind, you know, that he was, you know, very, you know, he had a great career, you know, he you know, he's an erudite, intelligent individual. But the person from the FA immediately goes, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. And so, effectively, he gets, you know, jimmied into the... jimmied into the selection process and eventually chosen for just... It sounds like something that you'd hear in sort of like a 1950s and 60s kind of Cold War drama. In other words, you know, it's just a cocktail conversation and then you get, you know junk thrown in at the deep end and the fact that it then came out that you know he'd you know some of the tweets that he sent back in the day you know were you know, borderline sexist banter made it even worse is that you know that after the mark sampson issue if there'd ever been a time for england to have had a women's manager or someone who had gone through the grassroots of you know women's coaching and just coaching women's teams rather than just basically helicoptering in a famous old male pro. I mean, in the end, he, he's learnt on the job, which is less than ideal, but he's shown a, a great deal of, you know, 
passion for the job and I think you know if as long as England qualify for the um, European Championship I think he's going to probably end up being a better coach than Mark Sampson but it's still the optics of it still look bad but then maybe I suppose if you're going to argue you could argue that comparing Aluko and Mez Ozil is really I suppose apples and oranges but I suppose okay if you say that there's an inbuilt issue if you're when you're dealing with you know the issue of you know sex in other words women's football you know has nowhere near the coverage nowhere near the money of the men's game which in my opinion makes you know, Aluko's case far more tougher than Ozil because Ozil is on a huge amount of money and if there's going to be an issue with regards to you know German politics let's say if you're going to talk about let's say, the rise of alternative for Deutschland. The difference, I would say, or the issues of race in Germany, is that Mez Ozil hasn't really played, hasn't played in Germany since he was, you know, effectively 21. It's not an issue that he's had to deal with on a daily, hourly basis. You know, I, I cannot think of any coverage that he's had since he's been at Arsenal that has had anything to do with his you know, race or religion, as far as I'm personally aware. So if you can say maybe that the Aluko issue is one of sexism and racism, and that the Ozil's one was more cultural and more to do with, I suppose, on a lower level, politics and religion, okay, well then maybe, let's say, compare him to Moen Ali. Now, Mesut Ozil was a, a gifted football player. And he goes through the rank, youth ranks at Schalke, one of the sort of major German clubs. I mean, they have a huge stadium that was part of the 2006 World Cup. And he's considered the next great thing. In other words, he plays for the you know, German national teams at youth level. Now, there's one moment in that that I suppose is instructive if we're going to talk about some of the issues that he later came out through with the photo gate is that at the time to play for the German national team you just had to have you know you couldn't have a joint nationality or anything like that and so as a result um, a young Ozil had to go to I think probably the I'd presume the Turkish embassy to fill out some forms just to say look no, I'm not. I'm not quite sure if it was renouncing, but the point is, he just had to fill out a form to say, "Look, I'm just going to be, you know, on paper purely German," and that someone at the embassy was essentially really, yeah, harsh about that, saying, "You know, oh, why are you doing this?" And I can imagine, you know, at the the time, especially you know, as a young adult, having to go through something like that, having to effectively, you know, renounce part of your you know, personal history, that would be hugely painful. But my point would be that it's... I'm sure the rules have changed. I, I believe they have done because um, Gundogan has both a you know Turkish passport and a German passport. And so things have changed and that's not necessarily the fault of the you know German football system that he was, you know, essentially mistreated or effectively browbeaten by someone in the Turkish embassy. But, so, comparing with someone like Moen Ali, now, Moen Ali was talented, but was nowhere near the 
level of expectation that was foisted on Ozil. So he's you know plays for his you know signed by his local county, Warwickshire, and plays that. England under seventeen, under nineteen level with with a fair amount of success. Now, the expectation would be that he'd then break into the Warwickshire team, and Warwickshire, one of the powerhouse English counties, you know, they there's an expectation, and playing at Edgbaston, which is a test ground, really affords you a, I suppose, a, a step up. In other words, if you play for Yorkshire. Warwickshire, Lancashire, Surrey, to an extent Middlesex. You know, if you play for a county at a test match ground, that gives you a one-up. And if you and if that team are in the first division, that gives you a one-up on getting into the England national team. And unexpectedly, Mo and Ali, you know, makes a couple of appearances for Warwickshire, but effectively they release him. They just think he's not going to quite make the grade. Now, considering this is someone who is captain the England under-19 team, that would be a huge kind of devastating shock if your home county effectively says, we don't think you're going to make the grade. And he then has to join Worcestershire, who are, you know, obviously, you know, same kind of geographical area, but far smaller. And, you know, it becomes much harder, and, you know, a second division team. So that become inc- immediately increases the difficulty of becoming a full England international. So by hard work, he becomes a really decent good batsman, but his numbers superficially don't immediately scream England call up. What he does is he has a you know bowling you know he bowls a bit of off spin, pretty good, but you know nothing more than you know a sort of handy third or fourth string. It's not something that immediately jumps off the page as being... He, it doesn't immediately say, this is a future England and international all-rounder. And so effectively, because England's spin reserves were at a low ebb, is that he gets essentially put into the T20 team, then makes his debut in the one days, and does just enough with his kind of off spin that he gets a test call up and really effectively what England say to him is we think you're a, a pretty much a top six batsman a borderline top six batsman but really if you're going to have any kind of test career you're going to need to be a an all-rounder and a spinning all-rounder at that so really on the job he's had to effectively turn himself into an international quality spin bowler while getting used to test match cricket and as a result he has batted everywhere from opening to number nine and he's been moved around at times he's been the only spinner at times he's been the second spinner he's had to play in test matches one days 2020s at a time when there's been a huge kind of Changes. So in other words, we had a disastrous World Cup in Australia and New Zealand where we didn't get out of the group stages. And, you know, there's been coaching changes. There's been sort of huge changes and there's been problems. You know, we've been beaten by the Australians a couple of times and all throughout this. And now the point is, is that playing international cricket is a just a tremendous grind. You've got three different forms of the game. You've got T20s, you've got 
test matches, you've got one day series, and you've also got the, the, the travel. In other words, if you play all three, you're generally going to spend about 250 days of the year in a hotel, and you travel all around the world. That's Sri Lanka, you're talking Asia, you're talking New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, all across the world. And even when you're at home, even if it's a home summer, you're going north, you're going south, you're going west, you're going a huge amount, huge ways of country, huge amounts of travelling. It's a really draining, demanding thing to do. And it's especially demanding if not only are you batting, you're bowling, you know, you're doing and you're constantly having your role changed and you're constantly battling the fact that you could be at any point dropped and that you may never get that opportunity again. You also have to then play for your county and you also, to try and improve your skills and to try and make money, you're looking to play you know, T20 series abroad. So Mayan Ali's played in the IPL, he's played out in Bangladesh. It's a tremendous pressure, but he's also had to factor in that he's become effectively an unofficial spokesman for the ECB's failings because, you know, of his, you know, he has a beard and his name. I, I consider him basically one of the most famous Muslims in this country. <laughs> and he is a symbol, much in the same way Ozil was a poster child for in Germany. So he's had to do, you know, a lot of media. He's had a lot of attention that has really been focused on, oh, wow, you're, you're a Muslim with a beard. Uh, what's your opinion on this? And as a result, there's been a huge amount of pressure. He's had to do a lot of, you know, grassroots work. Because really the ECB has over probably maybe two generations has let, you know, inner city cricket has declined. And the ECB and the county game has been really, frankly, atrocious in, in dealing with in dealing with the Asian diaspora in terms of, you know, getting, you know, county cricket has a horrible record of getting, you know, cricketers from Asian backgrounds into first teams, into youth systems. It's really just been an uh, unmitigated you know, jumble. And they're really now trying to battle back to getting some, you know, getting, I suppose, it, getting participation in, you know, youth cricket up to a level, and he's had to be a spokesman for that. And so he's had to deal, and I mean, he's done it in a very articulate way. In other words, he's made arguments saying that, you know, the cost of cricket equipment is too high, that it shouldn't cost £100 for a bat, is that really it shouldn't cost you 200 to £250 to kit yourself out for cricket. And as a result, a whole generation of of potentially huge cricket fans and potentially huge cricket talent for the county game and the international game has really been lost and he's also had to talk you know very eloquently about his religion and he's also had to deal with you know the you know, you've had terror attacks in the intervening time period you've had to, uh, he's being there's always an element of judgment and there's you know pressure on his position on his role as a spinner in a way that no other England cricketer has had to deal with that level. Probably outside of Alistair Cook, but even Alistair Cook, that was when he was captain. The second that the captaincy is taken away from him, 
and he resigns from the captaincy. Well, it, he one day captaincy taken away, and when he resigns from test captaincy, immediately he's then afforded to go back into the ranks. Whereby Moen Ali doesn't really have that, you know, have that luxury, or the luxury to just simply be judged on his cricket. So he has this hugely stressful calendar, he has this really important role as an ambassador, and one of the moments that he has that of any kind of controversy is that there's a, a test match and he's wearing a couple of uh, wristbands that were in support of Palestine. Now, the point is, 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 is that had it not been picked up by the cameras, no one would have noticed. It, it really was just a coloured arm back wristband, but it gets picked up by the cameras and halfway through, I think in lunch break, essentially the umpires say, look, under ICC regulations, you can't have something you know, that has a political thing on your person during the game. He goes, yep, yeah, fair enough, no, no bother, and he takes them off. So that and that was a, an element of controversy, but you know, effectively, he's you know whether he knew whether it was a an overt protest or not. Again, I can't make windows into men's souls. The point is, is that he takes them off. He doesn't complain, and if he was trying to make a point, it was made. But under the understanding that effectively he's an England cricket player, he is in no position to politically influence the situation, the Palestine issue as a whole. But he's made his point, and a lot of people, and you have to respect him for that. Mm. So I think to compare to someone like Ozil in terms of leadership, if I think one of the things that I picked up from Ozil was that in last season, that the his contract issue whereby he let his contract run down to the final year arsenal made you know sort of a couple you know numerous attempts to try and to re-sign him to a contract and the longer it went on the more, most people i think thought that he was going to just run his contract down to it was going to expire and he was then going to take a huge free agency payment from one of the you know possibly a chinese club possibly maybe an american club maybe a european giant a real madrid re-signing him or one of the german teams that was that was the expectation and as a result that that issue lingered and i think had a negative impact on wenger's last year is that yes the alexis sanchez issue was doing a similar thing but the understatement was the implication was is that Alexis Sanchez was desperate to move to a bigger club to get some glory. He'd had some success at international level with Chile. He'd had some success early in his career at Barcelona. But as a as a role player at Barcelona, obviously you had Messi. And he wanted one last attempt, I think, at winning domestically where he was going to be a big part of the team. Now, originally he gets linked with Man City... And rather than just basically play out the string for Arsenal and then sign a huge free agent contract, he eventually, you know, instead of moving to Man City, gets signed by Man United. At which point he's in the Champions League and there's still probably a much greater chance of winning something big than he would have had at Arsenal. As a result, he has obviously lost some money. <laughs> but, you know, you could see that there was a desire for him to get... Although the contract he signed at Man United was huge... My 
personal viewpoint of it was that he was doing so because he wanted to get closer to winning something and he saw Man United as being a better bet than Arsenal, which I think is a fair case. Now, with Ozil, eventually in the end, back end of last season, he signs a huge contract, £350,000 a year. He's one of the, easily must be in the top five, and at the time I think he was the highest paid footballer, maybe the second highest paid up past Sanchez, and he's now probably still in the top five. But there's still an implication that he doesn't take on a huge amount of responsibility. He doesn't do, I mean, I remember reading an article about him where saying that he, you know, in the mixed media zone. So in other words, in the tunnel, we've got basically a, a sort of designated area where there's journalists and effectively they're allowed to be there and you can stop and be interviewed by them or you can just walk straight through to, to the dressing room. And this journalist was saying, well, in my experience, Ozil has just always, you know, without fail, walked straight through the mixed media zone, straight to the dressing room without saying anything. And if you look at it, for someone who's on such huge wages, there's always, you know, he's, I suppose, stagnated as a player. And there's always that that lingering question mark over, you know, whether he's made the most of his talent. I think he's a, a fantastically talented player. And he, some of the stuff that he can do on a football pitch is truly glorious. But I think as an actual player that he is ineffective and that that's one of the rarest occurrences where you have a gifted player who is ineffective. In other words, he does cover quite a lot of ground in terms of running, but actually that doesn't achieve an awful lot. In other words, since he's joined Arsenal, they've got progressively worse. They... And he's never taken that responsibility. But the same flip side of it was happy to sign this huge contract. He was happy to effectively leverage his, you know... And you have to remember at the time that Arsenal weren't trying to get him to re-sign is that, you know, you had the Wenger issue. And the last thing they needed was one of their star players to effectively hold the club to ransom and to act as a huge distraction, which eventually, you know, it helped torpedo that season, and it helped torpedo Arsene Wenger, which, for me personally, was like, well, Arsene Wenger put in, you know, a huge amount of emotional, well, you know, political capital to sign, you know, Ozil, for 42.5 million, you know, three or four years previous to that. You know, he wasn't someone who was particularly happy spending huge amounts of money on players. But he, you know... But Wenger took this risk and he gave, you know, a huge amount of latitude for, you know, Ozil to play his natural game. And yet, I wouldn't say that any of the players, forward players, who have been at Arsenal in Ozil's time have improved. And I think that's a damning sort of indictment. Someone made a good point. It sort of made a good point regarding the the old Shane Warne criticism of Monty Panesar, that Monty Panesar played fifty tests for England, and but each test was the same. That it was just he, you know, when it worked, he looked fantastic. When it didn't, he he wouldn't look very good. And that the implication was is that. 
you know, he never learned a plan B. And I think to a certain extent with Ozil, you get that. There is a lack of, you know, taking responsibility. There, you know, he hasn't changed his game in the way or hasn't improved in a way that an Ericsson has improved or or a Kevin De Bruyne, who really have become the fulcrum of, of you know, Tottenham and Man City. And also, you know, even at international level, you'd have to say that, you know, people like Jerome Boateng, Manuel Neuer, have been probably, you know, more important in terms of performances. In other words, you know, there have been times when Ozil has played fantastically well for Germany. But even at the World Cup where they won it, he was sort of relegated to playing left wing. He wasn't really trusted to be the number 10. He, he, I don't think he's ever really kicked on from that 2010 tournament. I can remember watching him just tear England apart. I mean, that was a poor England team, but you know the players that he was up against in terms of Gareth Barry, in terms of Gerard, they were still decent top-level pros. And... And now, really, there's an element of sort of melancholy about Mesut Ozil. There's always a question of whether he's fulfilled his potential. And that's even someone that's, you know, won a World Cup, that's, you know, that has had the personal standing to have been made a poster child for an entire country, to be someone who's considered important enough to be a... To be an example of the benefits of multiculturalism. So really to I suppose to wrap this podcast up, I think it comes my question mark to my question to Ozil would be one of responsibility. I think the German people and people in general who asked question marks over that photo deserved better than essentially being I think fobbed off that their that their concerns weren't valid. I think what happened that an authoritarian leader used, you know, a selection of young football players as a an attempt to garner support for his political ambitions and that as a and as an unintended consequence, Mesut Ozil has had to go through a period of prolonged media pressure, which I don't necessarily think he deserved. While I think he could have dealt with it better, and I felt he could have addressed some of the questions and implications from it, the he's the one that's had to deal with the blowback from it and... On both sides, I suppose, on the German political side and on Erdogan himself, have really shirked responsibility in protecting Ozil, or to at least have given him to have given him more support. And I think that's very true of the German FA in particular. But that, in totality, if you compare him to, you know, Moen Ali and Enia Luko, that I don't think Mesut Ozil has, has taken on the level of responsibility and and the burdens and pressure that being that kind of role model entails thank you for listening